0: This is mission.org.
1: The pandemic basically ripped the bandit off streaming TV, meaning that, you know, a lot of people started using digital devices. So there's a lot of commotion in the market. What we are trying to do is two things. One, unlock the space for smaller advertisers and that's where our ad personalization technology comes in. It's how to make it available to the masses. The other problem is that, traditionally, TV advertising was bought using what's called GRP or some sort of currency, and Nielsen was that source of truth, as I like to call it. That world is changing. Measurement is changing.
0: Streaming TV is everything these days, and eyeballs are shifting away from traditional television. The problem is, knowing where marketers should start or how to make sure they get the best bang for their buck. This area of advertising is fragmented and we're still trying to figure out how to consolidate and best measure reach. Welcome back to Marketing Trends. I'm Jeremy Bergeron. And today we have on Omer Latif from Elemental TV, a leading connected TV advertising technology company that is first to power the next generation of ad break experiences through its proprietary ELM technology and vertical ad formatting. So if you're wanting to know more about branching into streaming TV advertising and what the future of that technology is going to look like, this is an episode you can't miss. Let's get to it. a large percentage of marketers, 72% of marketers say meeting customer expectations is more difficult than it was a year ago. How has this played out for you? And what is your team doing to tackle the consistent challenge of rising customer expectations?
1: You always have to be ideating and listening to the customers and their needs. But when you throw in some exogenous factors such as the pandemic, and a significant dislocation of resources between personnel and clients and customers alike, you have to kind of rethink the sandbox that you were operating in 24 months or so ago. So on one hand, you're trying to maintain a cadence of delivering product that you had set out at a, in, a, in a roadmap a couple of years ago. And then at the same time, you have to modify that and modulate your approach based on what's on what the the facts on the ground are dictating. From our perspective, what we saw was that we had a five year plan in our mind and that has been short circuited and compressed in let's say 12 months. And particularly our business is focused on delivering customizable ads, or as I refer to as uh, personalized ads on digital TVs, smart TVs and the like. And when the world shut down, everyone, sat at home and dramatically increased their consumption of media on smart devices, everything from a smart TV to an Apple TV, what have you, even on their mobile devices. So we had to rapidly fast forward a lot of our traction of the product that we were building. So it has been a dynamic process for us. And at the same time, remember, like there's a, there's a human element to it, which is like our team had to very quickly adapt to work from home, remote environment as well. So it's a time like no other, and it's very hard for me to say what I would do different, but uh,
0: yeah. 78% of marketing organizations have changed or reprioritized metrics due to the pandemic, due to the changes in the world the last couple of years. What has become of the most valuable metric for you and your team in this kind of new era?
1: Listening to our customers and being curious about what the needs are of the market because unexpected things happen. So you have to be agile and people use the word agile. And when we use it, obviously it's in the context of software development, but when you're being agile as a business, you have to have an element of vulnerability where you are willing to fail rapidly and develop and grow from it. So allowing my team to be able to like be vulnerable and be agile at the same time they both go hand in hand. That allows us to keep up to date on the pulse of the market and our customers.
0: I love those two. Those two words: be vulnerable and agile. And you put those two together, and that's a that's a powerful combination. What skill sets are or have become more valuable for your team now than they were, you know, a couple of years ago? How have you invested in improving key
1: skills? Yeah. Generally speaking, we have uh, tried to over communicate ourselves, within ourselves, we have moved away from quote-unquote quarterly metrics or any, any measurements like that. We have focused more on how to communicate in writing, how to communicate when you come to a meeting, for example, how to be more efficient uh, with your time. Uh, for example, we changed our working hours from the hours of between, it used to be like quote-unquote nine to five, but now it's more like nine to three p.m. Pacific time. And it's essentially over two years so of doing doing that. We have realized that we can accomplish the same at any within the same time frame and be more efficient about it. And and also trying to incorporate people's personal lives because you know my colleagues and myself we have young families. When you're in the office, you can compartmentalize that to some extent. But when you are working from home or have a shared space that you have to share with your family, you have to kind of somehow try to do, make the best of what you can. So, yeah
0: how did the How did the nine to three thing come about? Was that kind of an internal suggestion? Was that like something you tested out before kind of scaling that around the company? that's really interesting.
1: It was more intuition more anything else. It was like there was no uh, data science or hard science behind it that we had it It felt like that we can accomplish the same. And primarily it was practical was trying to be practical getting the kids out of the house in the morning, <laughs> walking them to school. By the time we come back and have breakfast and a cup of coffee, it's eight thirty. So, and by the time the kids come back from school, it's like three, three thirty. So, incorporating that reality in our workflow kind of forced us to think more creatively about how efficiently we can use our time.
0: Wow, that's that's great. I mean, I, I, there's a lot of talk around, you know, these kind of hybrid return to work models. It puts you in this position of okay, if I know that the finish line is three what do I, what do I get to do in that, in this block now? How, what, how, how, much intention do I need? And, you know, and that just, to me creates a lot of, yeah, people that would go after it, you know, especially if they're working in, in areas of the business that they love, which I assume you have there, but that's really cool. I like that, Omer. Let's shift into just anecdotally some of the things that I want to hear just your thoughts on this. What, what's something wise that your mentors or just folks that you respected taught you about leadership?
1: So I started my career in investment banking in 1998. This is right before the dot-com bubble. You may remember companies like Long-Term Capital Management, LTCM, Kidder Peabody. These banks were kind of unwinding themselves. So I had a great boss by the name of Peter Kind, and he uh, said to me that, because at some point I started assuming more managerial role and more responsible for personnel. And uh, one thing that he always said to me was that when it came time to compensation for your team and allocating compensation across the team, uh, and not just allocating it to, let's say, the top performer all the time, <laughs> he always used to say to me, Umar, if you don't split a dollar six ways, you haven't done your job right. So I've always like thought of that, something that I keep in mind when it comes to leadership and developing talent, identifying people.
0: Ah, oh, that's interesting. So... You split it. Split a dollar six ways, meaning like be as lean as possible. That is that kind of the the general idea.
1: We all we are hyper hyper competitive. We are all performance driven comp- businesses, and we have been in those environments. And ultimately, thinking about not just yourself but also the collective, the team, how to develop the team. And if let's say you have a dollar to split between six people and your team members. And yes, of course, if you were to just pick purely performance as a metric, which could be like most sales or whatever, what have you, you'll allocate a disproportionate amount of a dollar to that to that individual. But you have to look at everything and and the circumstances, and it comes down to how do you, how you develop the team, how you nurture the team, and how you cultivate the sense of unity amongst the team. So, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah.
0: Just literally, just before this interview, I, there's another show that I host called Business X Factors, and I was interviewing a gentleman who's the CEO of a company called Bloomreach, Raj Dadada, an amazing you know human. But he talked about just how much they doubled down on culture before they even created the business plan. They wrote the culture book, you know, and thinking about you, I can tell that like these core values of of how you. Look at this across the entire team and the impact across the team, whether it's six or fifty or a hundred. It's like, how do we look at the entire whole in terms of valuing that? And you you look at companies like Bloomreach and and even yours, Elemental TV, and others. I was speaking with the former CMO of Chick Fil A a couple of weeks ago, and you hear about the early days of Chick Fil A, how they they double down on culture before anything else. They didn't double down on oh we got to make the best like food ever. They were like. How do we ensure that our operators and our team members at the local level you know, have this amazing experience with us that when they come to work with us, they never leave? It's their intent to never leave. And then you look at the through line of Chick-fil-A right now in their category, You know, they'll cross probably 20 billion this year or more, and they were never focused on growth. They were focused on how do we get better with our people and the whole way they focused on that. And I think a lot of businesses can, of course, lose sight of that when they get to a certain size and scale. You know, you go from six to seven figures to eight to nine figures and up. Lots of things happen. So Elemental TV creates new revenue streams for CTV publishers and provides advertisers with unique video ad formats not available anywhere else on the market. How did you get to creating Elemental TV? Tell us that kind of genesis story.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So I started my career in 98. Uh, At a bank called Solomon Brothers. That became Solomon Smith Barney and then subsequently Citigroup. I was there until 2007. And I then made uh, a move to Lehman Brothers. I was there for a year and Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. I'm sure we uh, we all remember that. I was unemployed and uh, there were no jobs in finance. I think by that time I was done with banking, I was in a position where I was like, well, I've been giving client's advice for the better part of the last 10 years, it's probably time to kind of, you know, build something on my own, which is something that I had always aspired to do. So my focus was always in technology, media, and the intersection of that. I've always been a keen uh, student of that uh, that space and where they intersect. So in the finance world, I was creating products for financial engineering, as as, as I would like to call it it came time for me to see how I can apply the same skill set with my analytical approach as to how to build products in advertising. So this is probably my fifth startup. Actually, this is the fifth startup, Elemental T, which we started about three years or so ago. My first company was called BPO Solutions. The idea there was that we, I take a very deliberate approach when I look at an industry. I try to unpack all the key players and understand where the fragmentation is, where the friction is, and find opportunities where we can create value we can't do everything and we can do some things and we try to do like 10 things 10000 times and then essentially that's essentially how we operate so fortunately i have assembled a core team of people that i've had since 2009 that have stayed with me between engineering and data science and product development and and along the way i've been able to fortunately partner up with other folks who've been able to like you know help me deliver The vision that we have articulated. So, the first business was focused on figuring out a way for advertisers to reach publishers who were otherwise uh, not available on search. So, back in 2009, uh, the top 10 um, websites received 90% of the ad dollars. However, you and I spend 90% of our time on the long tail websites, not the the google.com, but those are just the gateways. So what was going on, there was this artificial pricing pressure for buying audiences on these, call it the head websites. What I did, I said, I can go to the smaller websites and start representing their inventory in the marketplace. So we created an exchange and a marketplace, call it like a stock market, but for media. Where we, where we basically took principal risk and actually purchased the inventory from the smaller websites upfront, And then using some option math, figured out how much we can sell it in the open market. And then we found buyers and sellers for that. So the so same advertiser like a geico.com who will, for instance, pay, for example, $10 per click on google.com can buy the same user, right? Same audience on a smaller website that doesn't have that bigger footprint, but for maybe half the price. And essentially what you've done is basically improved the return on average spend or ad spend for that advertiser. So that business basically allowed us to generated a lot of value for our publishers that we worked with and the advertisers basically moved over because they were able to acquire the same audiences. That business ran for a better part of four years. And then Google came in, started basically doing the same thing. So, you know, it's like, you know, so for me, it was like, well, the opportunity has, has gone away because uh, then we moved into email marketing and newsletter marketing. Uh, essentially we, we found that newsletters were under, newsletters were under monetized, and so we basically brought in advertisers to be able to advertise their brands inside newsletters. Now, after that business, we saw a lot of uh, issues with that business in terms of deliverability because uh, it's very sensitive to how spam filters in a certain, someone's inbox scans a certain newsletter. So there were some headwinds in, the, in that business. The business that we started, that, that was the second business. The third business that I started was essentially promoting app installs from desktop to mobile. That was called AppIgniter. And uh, that business didn't do very well. We shut it down after one year because it was not, uh, it did not meet the metrics that we wanted. So the fourth business was focused on building all our collective knowledge of data science that we had built over the, over the prior years and offering it to publishers to optimize their inventory. Uh, it was called the Yield Nexus. And in that process, we realized that the fastest growing medium was video. This is uh, circa 2016, 2017. And this is essentially, we saw video growing on desktop, mobile web and app. And about three years or so ago, we saw this, that a lot of these dollars are shifting to connected TV and CTV and streaming TV. So we refocused ourselves to deliver all our expertise into the connected TV space, which we believe is like a very big market. and. Uh, Throughout this whole process, the, the recipe has been the same. Large market, opportunity to, to very fragmented, lots of players. And how do you create efficiencies for buyers and sellers of media in that? Essentially, that, is, that has always been our... Uh, and then in that process, we build tools. In that process, we use data to guide ourselves. We look for the objective truth, which is not our assumption or someone else's assumption. We look at what... The data tells us and we let the data determine the direction of the business. So, so yes, if Elemental TV is now exclusively focused on delivering these personalized ad experiences for the streaming TV dev- environment.
0: So with the other businesses, I mean, were those all like sold?
1: I have not raised any cap- institutional capital to run these businesses. And that was a decision uh, we made uh, because of being in finance and banking. Once again, going back to my ethos that I saw a lot of uh, internet companies raising a lot of venture capital. Nothing against venture capital, I think there's a time and place for that. At least the businesses that I was pursuing, I felt that if we raised a lot of venture capital, it will put us on a path that will take away the nimbleness and the agility to be able to move around and evolve. Oftentimes, what I observed uh, having taken a bunch of companies public, what I observed is that when venture capitalists gets involved, there is an element of discipline that is added, which is how to grow pretty much at our, at all cost, how to acquire more revenue, how to develop a sales pipeline. The sales process becomes decoupled from the product development aspect of things, and when that happens, businesses try to acquire ...revenue at the expense of product development and the balance sheet of the business, both from an intellectual property perspective and also from a resource and actual growth perspective, you're buying revenue with an upside down balance sheet. You're just borrowing capital from someone else. But when these companies went public, public shareholders are a lot more scrutinizing. And when you're unable to maintain revenue growth from one quarter to the next quarter to the next quarter... Particularly in markets where you don't have a lot of pricing power, when you have these large companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook, basically always gnawing at your cookie, these companies failed. And who ended up holding the bag at the end of it? Were the employees. So I made a deliberate choice that venture capital. If I were to pursue something that is going to require venture capital, then obviously it makes sense. But then the businesses that we pursued, they were not suitable for venture capital. So. The reason I mentioned that is because we self-funded each and every one of these businesses. We got them to profitability. And at one point, the first business had 120 employees spread across five countries, all the way from the U.S. to China to Europe and Israel. And uh, all that was through self-funding, I mean, from the profits of the business. And then essentially, we rolled that capital forward as we saw the opportunities developing into new businesses
0: what would you say is kind of the the biggest challenge that you're up against?
1: It's a very exciting space that we are in right now because uh, that pandemic basically ripped the bandit off streaming TV, meaning that, you know, a lot of people started using digital devices. So there's a lot of commotion in the market. There's a lot of stakeholders and they're all trying to go for audiences, if that makes sense. You know, like there's, they're your traditional broadcasters who, and then they're your broadband companies. They all want to be in the media business because that's what's create their ephemeral relationship with the audience mm-hmm. and the brands. So there are the OEMs like Samsung, Vizio, and LG. They are basically making now these very smart devices that can act as your cable box replacement or your set-top box replacement. Then there are these dongle makers or our or auxiliary device makers like Roku and and even Apple TV and, and, and Chromecast, for example, or Google or Google TV. And then you have your traditional uh broadcasters, Comcast. They're, they're becoming like large companies. Problem that we foresee what that we are seeing right now in the streaming TV business is that it is a an advertiser demand constrained business, meaning that they are Maybe 100 or 150 advertisers that make up a lion's share of the ad dollars that go into the streaming TV business. Because as you know, right, creating a 30-second video spot requires uh, an, industri- it's an industrial undertaking, right? Between, uh, I'm sure you, you are in the media business, you understand that you got to like, hire actors, you have to have a script, you have to have a show, you have to have a, you have to have a studio, you have to have a camera crew. I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. You know, it's, it requires a significant amount of budget. What we are trying to do is do two things. One, unlock the space for smaller advertisers. And that's where our ad personalization technology comes in, is how to make it available to the masses, how to expand the total addressable market beyond the top 100, 200 advertisers to thousands and thousands of advertisers. Your local plumber, your local electrician who wants to buy CTV ads in their DMA, for example, And how to help them create a creative that otherwise does not require them to spin an arm and a leg or hire a Photoshop expert to create a video ad. Because, you know, he or she is only focused on their own trade. They're not in the business of creating video assets, for example, for a video ad. And then that's one problem. The other problem is that traditionally TV advertising was bought using what's called GRP or some sort of currency. And Nielsen was that source of truth, as I like to call it that world is changing, measurement is changing. Whereas on the digital side, inventory is not sold that way. So we are actually in the process of building this, what we could refer to internally as Project Link, essentially allow us to create this translation layer using our data science expertise to connect the linear dollars, as I like to call them or the broadcast dollars. It's circa about $60 billion and somehow connect them to the streaming TV business. And that's where the opportunity is for us in the next five years, moving those dollars over, expanding the reach for the advertisers, so that this medium, which is not going anywhere, becomes more meaningful for, for brands and for advertisers uh, to create more meaningful relationships with their audiences.
0: What's like the profile of your kind of ideal customer?
1: Agencies who are representing a broad set of dollars, both from local the last mile agencies, you know, and that are serving the yellow page advertisers, for example, national advertisers, companies, um, and that represent agencies that represent that and direct brands. And there's this this new segment of direct to consumer that is now developing. Right? Traditionally and historically, they have transacted on the social media element, but those dollars can also be shifted over to streaming TV. Remember, you have a shared device in a household, your size, fifty five inch, sixty five inch TV, what have you at 1080p or 4K TV, and all you have is a a remote with four buttons on it for the most part. And so how do you create the relationship between that device and your phone that you're holding it all the time? So uh, we are looking for advertisers who want to operate at the intersection of that.
0: Okay, that's awesome. Let's do the uh, lightning round questions. You ready for them?
1: Oh, let's do it, that's it.
0: Okay, all right, let's do it, okay. So. For those of you listening uh, for the first time, thank you so much for for staying with us. If you have been here before, then you already know this podcast is sponsored by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. So if you want to learn more, head over to salesforce.com forward slash marketing. Here we go. Omer Latif, CEO, Elemental TV. First question, texting or talking? Talking. Okay. Uh, what's one thing you love and appreciate about yourself? Curiosity. That's my, literally my favorite answer, so thank you. What's your favorite day of the week? Tuesday. Ah, uh, why Tuesday?
1: If nothing happened on Monday, I think Tuesday would be fine. The rest of the week would be okay.
0: good. <laughs> that's great. You're the first person that said Tuesday. I get a lot of interesting days, but you're the first that said Tuesday, so that's great. What's your favorite city in the U.S. besides the one you live in?
1: Washington, D.C.
0: Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals?
1: I think every language in the world, and that would include the language of the animals, so yes.
0: Oh, okay. Now, that's a, that's a, see, you're the first person to say that too. So you, you keep keeping the bar high there, Omer. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite holiday? Thanksgiving. Scale of one to 10, how good of a driver are you? An eight. Please fill in the blank. Something wise your elders taught you was?
1: Let the universe unfold itself in front of you.
0: Well said. I love that one. What superpower would you choose, invisibility or super strength? Super strength. Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? No. Okay. (laughs) If you weren't leading Elemental TV, uh, what would you be doing? Surfing. Ah, okay, okay. What is, if you have one, what is your least favorite marketing
1: buzzword? It's too many.
0: <laughs> I know, right? What would you go back and whisper in your the ear of your younger self about being a leader? Listen more. Oh, that's good. Great. This has been a great opportunity, a great show. Omer, thanks for being here. Um, I'd love to stay connected with you as you continue to grow and it's such an honor. And, and thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thank you so much for your time.